Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Ambassador Nathan Sales. Ambassador Sales is currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, working with the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative and Middle East programs, and focusing on counterterrorism, security, democracy and the rule of law, and human rights. Ambassador Sales has had a long and distinguished career in government. He previously served as the Acting Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, and concurrently as Ambassador-at-Large and Coordinator for Counterterrorism. He also served as the Special Presidential Envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. He received his Bachelor's Summa Cum Laude from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and his Law Degree Magna Cum Laude from Duke Law School. Ambassador Nathan Sales, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks, Nino. It's great to be here. You know, I, I think the last time I saw you was probably in the cafeteria at the State Department. So uh, it's good to be back in touch, uh, uh, screen to screen now rather than in person. But it's always good to have a conversation with. That's you. right, and hopefully we'll we'll be back there in the Foggy Bottom cafeteria before long. Um, Inshallah. That's now. Um, I want to start at the beginning, and we're going to travel back in time. I was barely five years old when the first U.S. soldier stepped foot in Afghanistan in 2001. And just last month, 13 U.S. service members were killed in the Kabul airport attack. Their average age, 22 years old. Let's start with the origin of this conflict. Why did America go to Afghanistan? And what have we been doing there for the past 20 years? So it's a great question and uh, a complicated one, but the the most straightforward way to answer that is to say, we we went into Afghanistan because of 9-11. The Taliban, which controlled Afghanistan from 1996 on through 2001, had given safe haven to uh, Al-Qaeda. Osama bin Laden and his senior leadership cadre relocated to Afghanistan after they were uh, evicted from Sudan in 1996. They set up shop in Afghanistan. um, And that was where they plotted the 9-11 attacks. Um, After the attacks, the United States issued the Taliban an ultimatum, hand them over or else, and the Taliban uh, refused to do so, uh, reflecting what I think um, is a very strong and unbreakable strategic partnership between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. So we went into Afghanistan for simple counterterrorism reasons. Uh, We wanted to destroy the terrorist network that had enabled and carried out the 9-11 attacks. Um, Along the way, um, and this is where we get into the more complicated part of the question, Along the way, our ambitions became rather more maximalist um, than simply degrading and defeating terrorist networks. Um, We began nation-building projects. We wanted to create a a centralized Afghan state. We wanted to create a centralized Afghan armed forces um, modeled on the government models and the military models with which we were familiar in the West. 
And over the course of 20 years, um, while those efforts achieved some notable and important successes, it also became increasingly clear that the much more ambitious American role in Afghanistan uh, was really unsustainable. Um, and so beginning about 10 years ago, uh, even during the Obama administration, we started to see some Afghanistan fatigue among, uh, certainly among policymakers in Washington, but also increasingly among everyday Americans who were wondering, well, why are we still in Afghanistan? We destroyed Al Qaeda, we've killed Osama bin Laden. Um, and I think, you know, American policymakers um, uh, owed it to the American people to be more open and transparent about why we were there. Yeah. Um, if we're there for something beyond counterterrorism, then we need to make the case. Uh, we need to explain what we're doing and why, and why we think that that is uh, a good cost benefit uh, proposition for the American people. And I think um, in the polling numbers we're seeing today, where uh, large majorities disapprove of the way the Biden administration handled the withdrawal, but generally are favorably inclined to the idea that let's bring our soldiers home. Yeah. I, I think in that uh, polling data, what we're seeing is at least 10 years of failure on the, on the part of America's foreign policy establishment to explain to voters what we're doing and why it matters to them. Hmm. I want to talk about the withdrawal and some of the images that stick with us because these images have been burned in people's minds, I think. We've seen employees of the U.S. government being evacuated from the roof of our embassy by helicopter. Afghan men and women chasing C-17s down the runway at Kabul airport, some clinging to the plane through takeoff and falling to their death. Billions of dollars worth of U.S. military equipment left behind for enemies of America either to use or to sell to the highest bidder. Americans, we don't even know how many, have been left to fend for themselves. Lists of Americans in country and Afghans who helped our military given to the Taliban. The question people all around the world are asking, what happened? How could this have happened? Was the Afghan government weaker than we anticipated? Was the Taliban stronger? Or was this simply a failure of epic proportions on the part of the U.S. intelligence community and the leaders of our military and civilian government? What's your read on this? So I think uh, the easy out is to blame the spies for getting the intelligence wrong. But I, I think that's probably not really uh, what happened here. Um, my sense is that, as is often the case, the intelligence community had a range of opinions about the timetable for the eventual collapse of the Afghan government. Uh, I think everybody in the intelligence community and basically everybody in the policy community would have understood that the withdrawal of American forces was going to light a fuse um, that would result in the collapse of the Afghan government. There was probably disagreement about how long or short that mm -hmm. fuse was uh, with, with some elements of the intelligence community predicting fairly rapid collapse and others predicting a more attenuated collapse. Um, as it turns out, the fuse was pretty short indeed. So what went wrong? I, I don't think it was an intelligence failure. I think it was a, a policy failure and a, a planning and execution failure. Let, let's start with the policy. I think uh, policymakers failed to appreciate the extent to which the Afghan army depended on American air power. We hmm. built the Afghan army to fight the same way the American armed forces fight. That is to say, 
um, uh, with uh, ground forces backed by overwhelming air power that can be called in through sophisticated communication systems at a moment's notice. Um, we trained the Afghan army to fight alongside American air power. Mm. In April, the president announced to the world that he was pulling out all U.S. forces, no matter what the conditions were on the ground. And I think that had two effects, at least two effects. One was to immediately demoralize the Afghan army, um, to, to, to now understand that the American air power they'd relied on for so long was no longer going to be there uh, to back them up um, during combat. And I think the other thing was they were now fighting a war for which they had never trained. They had never been trained to fight uh, a ground, uh, in ground combat operations detached from any sort of American air support. Um, and not only did we, not only did the president uh, remove the possibility of American air support, he also withdrew private sector contractors who were in Afghanistan to service the Afghan Air Force and other air assets. They, did, they could no longer count on American air support and they didn't have the ability to field their own air assets anymore. So I, I think that really um, helped explain the rapidity of the, of the collapse of Afghan forces. Once they saw the, the writing was on the wall, I think they made a calculated judgment that it would be better to seek a negotiated surrender rather than to fight a war that without air power they viewed as uh, increasingly futile if this were ancient greece there would be generals beheaded for this and I'm, I'm certainly not calling for that but it's striking when you look at the people responsible for as you said this policy planning and execution failure the secretary of state tony blinken is still there lloyd austin the secretary of defense is still there. The president, the vice president, the national security advisor, they are all still there. To my knowledge, there has not been a single resignation of anyone who would have been in a decision-making authority here. Why hasn't there been any accountability? Do, do you think we should expect some at some point? Yeah, I think the, the only head that has rolled, so to speak, was uh, the one Marine Lieutenant Colonel who posted uh, a video of himself criticizing his military chain of command. And they're like, uh, sorry, thank you for your service. But you're quite right. Um, there's been no senior level uh, accountability. And I have to be honest, I, I don't think we should expect any because if the White House were to demand or accept resignations from some of the folks you've mentioned, that would amount to a tacit concession that the Afghanistan uh, withdrawal was not, as the president has called it, an extraordinary success, but something that falls rather short of an extraordinary success. Um, I, I have to also add to that, that I, I think um, ultimately responsibility for this rests on the president's shoulders. Yeah. I think it was the president who set out the mission parameters that made it impossible to do an orderly and secure withdrawal. I think if given the opportunity, um, the State Department and the Defense Department uh, would have requested, would have deployed additional assets into Afghanistan and would have done the withdrawal over a longer time horizon uh, in order to do it effectively and safely. Um, but I think, I don't know this from any inside information, but just from reading between the lines of what's out in the public domain, I, I think that the White House was stubborn. Mm. I think the president set an arbitrary deadline of August 31st, and I think he was not willing to budge. 
I think he allowed a certain number of troops to be in the country. Um, and that was enough to secure either Bagram Air Base or our embassy. Um, he was not willing to budge. And so our armed forces had to make a choice. We can't secure the embassy and Bagram, so we're gonna let Bagram go. Um, and as it turns out, that, that was a catastrophic mistake. Um, it was uh, all of the images of chaos and disorder that we've seen from, uh, from Hamid Karzai International Airport. All of that is due to our inability to maintain control over Bagram, which is a much more secure environment. It's not in the middle of a five million person strong city. Um, uh, we could have controlled the perimeter rather than relying on the good graces of the Taliban to police access to it. And a million other different reasons why um, uh, Hamid Karzai Airport was uh, uh, inferior to Bagram. But it was ultimately, I think, the president who had a very rigid um, and stubborn approach. We're gonna have a deadline of August 31st. We're gonna have X number of troops and we will not deviate from that plan come hell or high water. Yeah. And as it turns out, hell came and the United States was not in a position to adjust. That's right. Sticking with President Biden for a second, he's talked a lot about our over the horizon capabilities in Afghanistan in the region, this ability to identify threats before they metastasize and eliminate these threats at a distance. Is it realistic to rely on these so-called over the horizon capabilities after removing so many critical military and intelligence assets from the country? No, I don't think it is. I think over the horizon is a pleasant sounding buzzword that is much harder to implement in practice um, than it is to say over and over again at press conferences. Look, if you want to take terrorists off the battlefield, you need at least two categories of things. First of all, you need intelligence collection capabilities in the country and you need strike assets in the country or very near, very nearby. Unfortunately, in Afghanistan, we have neither of those. So let's start with um, the intelligence. If you're gonna use drones or other um, uh, air assets to take out terrorists, you need to have an extraordinary amount of intelligence information first. Um, you need persistent stare on these guys to develop their pattern of life. You need to know what time they're gonna wake up in the morning and go out to the outhouse. You know what time they're gonna go to the coffee shop. You know what coffee shop they like on Wednesday. Uh, you know what time they pick up their kid from school and drop them off. And you develop in excruciating detail this pattern of life so that you're able to take a strike at the precise moment where you can minimize civilian casualties. So intelligence collection capabilities are essential, not only because uh, you, need, you need that to pinpoint where the target is, but also because you need to do everything in your power to minimize the risk of collateral damage to innocent civilians and civilian infrastructure. The minute you take away your drones that are collecting signals intelligence, the minute you take away your human intelligence networks on the ground uh, that are scooping up this sort of intelligence information, it becomes much, much more difficult to find and fix, as they say in the armed forces, the terrorist adversaries that we're looking to take off the battlefield. And then when it comes to strike assets, uh, over the horizon presents certain difficulties there as well. Um, if we had retained Bagram Air Base and, and kept the ability to fly drones or other American aircraft in Afghanistan, the, the time from launch to target is measured in the minutes, yeah. right? And what that means is your assets can stay overhead for hours and hours and hours at a time, collecting information and waiting for the right moment to take the strike. 
that's gone now, mm. right? And so we'll be flying uh, drones in probably from bases in uh, the Persian Gulf, maybe from aircraft carriers uh, if we're dealing with um, a naval aircraft. You're looking at an eight-hour flight time uh, into Afghanistan, an eight-hour flight time back. That leaves you, what, five, six hours of loiter time in the country to collect information and then finish uh, uh, strikes. Um, so the vast majority of your time for a drone to operate will be transiting to and from the theater. That is not a recipe for success. Not to mention the fact that in order to get from the Gulf into Afghanistan, you have to fly over Pakistan. Uh, and Pakistan has a vote on whether to open its territory, uh, open its airspace to American drones. Um, they might say yes, but they might extract concessions from us, yeah. asking us to look the other way on various other priorities that matter to Islamabad. So. Um, we really have, the White House really has put us in a position uh, where we won't have uh, the information we need to take the bad guys off the battlefield, and we won't have assets in place to do it in exigent circumstances. The last numbers I saw reported were something like this. We, we had evacuated from Afghanistan more than 80,000 people who are not American citizens or civ holders. Do we know who they are? Is this a cause for concern? I don't think we do know, and, and I think it is a cause for concern. I think the first thing I would say is our top priority over the short term has to be getting out every single American citizen who's in Afghanistan and wants to come home, as well as Afghan allies who literally risked their lives to work for the United States. Yeah. These are people who now have targets on their back. Um, they stood with us and we need to stand with them. Now, the difficulty is um, in the chaos of the evacuation, it was very difficult to know who was getting on planes and, and who was manifested and who was getting through checkpoints. Um, so that presents a couple of different problems. One is the risk of line jumping. So we, we don't, we should never tolerate uh, a situation in which, you know, special immigrant visa applicants or even worse visa holders are playing by the rules and waiting patiently to be processed by uh, the U.S. Embassy or by U.S. diplomats in the region, um, while other people who have no tie to the United States whatsoever are, are cutting the line and forcing their way um, on the aircraft. Um, and the other concern is if, if you are a person who is going through the SIV process, um, that is a 14-step process, which in, in many respects is cumbersome uh, and, and torturously inefficient. But the reason for those 14 steps is to make sure that everybody who comes to the United States is in fact deserving of coming here and is not a security threat. Right. People who have jumped the line and have not gone through that process, we're not necessarily going to have the same degree of confidence um, that they're not coming here for malign reasons. So um, I think that has to be one of our top orders of business is getting greater fidelity on who was left behind, who made it out, um, and you know what can we do at this point to give the highest possible priority to American citizens, uh, and, as well as our Afghan allies. What are our allies saying about us right now? What, what do they have to say about this withdrawal? Nothing good, I'm afraid. Um, I, I saw that the British parliament has censured uh, President Biden, um, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary rebuke from our closest ally. Um, and, and we've got a long way from the special relationship yeah. between Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher. Now, we've had disagreements between the United States and the United Kingdom 
uh, not just the Revolutionary War or the War of 1812. We, we didn't see eye to eye over Suez in the 1950s. We, we didn't see eye to eye over the Falklands uh, in the 1980s. Uh, but the strategic partnership between the United States and the United Kingdom uh, has endured despite occasional disagreements. This looks like something different. Right? This looks like something monumentally worse um, because the White House's unilateral decision to pull out of Afghanistan didn't just end our involvement there, it also ended the involvement of our NATO allies. Um, and the UK and Germany and other NATO allies are understandably um, um, angry at the United States for acting, I'll be more precise, angry at the Biden White House uh, for acting in such a unilateral way that disregarded the wishes of our allies. Now, I'm not suggesting that our allies should have a veto over what the United States does in its national security and foreign policy interests. Right. But at a minimum, I think we owe it to our NATO allies to hear them out. Uh, remember, the reason NATO is in Afghanistan in the first place is because of 9-11. After the 9-11 attacks, our NATO allies invoked Article 5 of the NATO treaty. It was the first time Article 5 had ever been invoked, and it provides that an attack on one country is an attack on all countries. It's the collective self-defense provision. Um, the UK didn't have to go to Afghanistan yeah. in 2001. France didn't. Germany didn't. They did it because they value their alliance with us. Um, and, and so uh, I believe that they are probably feeling uh, rather abused and um, uh, um, ra rather abused and neglected for the United States to cast aside that alliance commitment so readily. So our allies are displeased. They feel abused and neglected. What about our adversaries? What are Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping thinking right now? Uh, I think they're uh, thinking that the United States is a weak ally and they are going to um, propagate that narrative at every possible opportunity. Um, we're already seeing China do this with Taiwan. Um, China is the Chinese Communist Party is messaging to Taiwan. Do you really want to count on the Americans if they won't stand with their Afghan allies? What makes you think they're going to stand with Taiwan? Yeah. So wouldn't it be better? to just turn the page uh, and reintegrate peacefully with the mainland. Um, I think it's not just great power competition that we have to worry about, uh, although certainly Russia and China and Iran will point to the White House's uh, bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan for their own malign geopolitical purposes. You know, I think uh, we also have to worry about what this signals to our terrorist adversaries. Mm. Al-Qaeda is looking at us and thinking, there's the weak horse, yeah. to use Osama bin Laden's phrase. Uh, ISIS is looking at us and thinking much the same thing. Um, all of these terrorist groups now feel emboldened by the Taliban's 20-year resistance uh, against the United States uh, and our democratic Afghan partners. Um, they will see this as a vindication of everything that they have tried to do, and it will be a rallying cry for them and for other jihadists uh, who we don't even know about yet. Um, uh, in which they seize on what they see as a great victory um, um, and use it as motivation to continue to fight against the United States um, or regional partners. Talking about those terrorist groups that we know of and those we don't yet, the internal dynamics of Afghanistan today. America, gone. The Taliban, ISIS-K, the Akani Network, and probably others vying for control. What comes next for Afghanistan and the region? I think we're going to be looking at a 
prolonged period of instability and conflict um, as the Taliban seeks to consolidate its control over the country. Um, and I think we're also going to see a number of malign actors in the region uh, use their influence in the country to promote their own interests. So uh, we're going to see Pakistan, and in fact, we already are seeing Pakistan even more brazenly supporting uh, the, the Taliban's malign activities in the country. Uh, we're going to see Iran. I wouldn't be surprised if the head of the Quds Force had already paid a courtesy call in Afghanistan. And if he hasn't yet, um, it's likely that he or one of his colleagues will be doing so very soon. Um, China is going to be uh, viciously exploiting uh, Afghanistan's mineral resources, particularly rare earths that China needs uh, for various industrial applications, um, and pressuring the Taliban to look the other way on the genocide of Xinjiang, uh, the Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Um, sadly, I think the Taliban's commitments to uh, the welfare of Muslims only go so far, and it will stop as soon as Xi Jinping uh, makes that the price of doing business with China. So I, I would expect a sort of, um, I would expect a certain amount of indigenous instability and violence as the Taliban seeks to consolidate its control and various other elements of Afghan society uh, resist the, the brutal imposition of Taliban rule. We're, we're seeing uh, women protest on the streets of Kabul. We're seeing resistance movements, armed resistance movements of varying degrees of capability and credibility um, uh, step up in different parts of the countryside. I, I would look for those movements to continue, uh, both um, uh, armed and peaceful, because let's face it, the Taliban has no mandate. Uh, this is in effect an armed coup by a small faction that has never enjoyed popular support in Afghanistan and that is rejected by the overwhelming majority of the Afghan people. If the Taliban ever had to run in an election, they would lose <laughs> and it would be a landslide, right? So I, I would expect, and frankly, the United States should encourage um, peace-loving, freedom-loving, democracy-loving Afghans to continue to stand up for their rights uh, we need to support them diplomatically. We need to support them economically uh, and through various other tools of national power. Um, and then to, to that sort of indigenous uh, um, um, instability uh, and disorder inside Afghanistan, I, I think all of that is going to be amplified by the malign conduct of uh, the, the region's rogue regimes, um, China, Pakistan, uh, Iran, and others. If we look at justifications for going into Afghanistan from 2001 until today. We have, one, we need to confront an immediate terrorist threat. Two, we need to do some nation building. Three, we need to bring some semblance of stability to the region. 20 years later, 2021, are we not farther away from every single one of those objectives? Hmm. Well, so I think we've done the most on counterterrorism. Um, so our counterterrorism situation today is dramatically better than it was in 2001. Um, we, we decimated Al-Qaeda's core leadership cadre, um, which was in Afghanistan. Uh, we, we took many of their leaders off the battlefield, um, either giving them the martyrdom they sought hmm. uh, or arresting them and, and putting them into the criminal justice system. Um, and I think 
our intelligence collection capabilities are uh, significantly better today than they were 20 years ago. Now, we're going to lose some of those capabilities, and I think we should expect that al-Qaeda will look to reconstitute some of its uh, networks uh, in Afghanistan, but I still think we are far better off than we were 20 years ago. Um, with respect to the other goals, you know, th th there's a sense in which you know, Afghanistan was you know, come for the counterterrorism and stay for the nation building. Yeah. Um, and, and with respect to those other more ambitious projects, um, I, I think we made great progress in certain respects, but the question is going to be how durable and how sustainable are those gains? And I think with the Taliban sweeping back to power, many of those gains uh, are going to erode uh, almost instantaneously. Um, the things that we did well in Afghanistan uh, we created institutions that promoted civil society, that promoted liberal values of free speech and freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, that promoted women's rights. Um, and, you know, I, I have to hope that some of those Western liberal values uh, took root in Afghanistan. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the United States should maintain you know, an active war fighting posture in Afghanistan just for the sake of promoting human rights. Um, in my mind, the human rights benefits were always ancillary to the counterterrorism mission. Uh, we're there for counterterrorism that produces certain gains in other respects that are important to Afghanistan and that over the long run are important to the United States. Um, but that's not the desired end state. That's not the reason we're there. That is a, a beneficial byproduct. Um, other things that went wrong, uh, corruption, we were never able to get a handle on, on the corruption of the Afghan government. And in many respects, the United States was probably responsible for enabling significant corruption. Mm -hmm. When you show up with suitcases full of cash, uh, corruption tends to happen. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think the what Afghanistan could have looked like with uh, a, a longer term U.S. presence I think it's impossible to say uh, it, it probably would not have been, you know, an Athens um, or uh, another uh, EU candidate, member country candidate, uh, but it would have been better than a medieval dictatorship. Um, and uh, I think that, unfortunately, is the direction that Afghanistan is headed. In a second, I'd like to get your thoughts, generally speaking, about what our main takeaways should be and, and what this episode should teach future leaders of American foreign policy. But I want to drill down on a, on a specific thing you mentioned, and that's human rights in a country like Afghanistan. This has been a central part of your work uh, and your service in government. There is a growing chorus, certainly on the right, that says something to the effect of, it's just none of your business. Ambassador Sales, you were talking about fostering liberal institutions and encouraging free speech and women's rights in Afghanistan. It's just not our business. It's not our job to be doing that. How do you think about this? What, what do you think America's role is in advancing these, uh, these ideals around the world? Well, I think it's an essential part of our foreign policy. Now, that doesn't mean that we use military tools in order to advance human rights. Um, we, we have a full toolkit of uh, instruments of national power that we can use uh, and we should be using, um, um, but uh, we, we don't need to uh, spread democracy and human rights at the barrel of a gun. So why does it matter? It, it matters in part because um, the United States has always stood for uh, certain principles of liberal democracy. We're a shining city on a hill. Um, 
that that phrase is is often understood as the United States needs to set an example to the rest of the world for for the rest of the world to, to follow. But the original understanding of the phrase "shining city on the hill" meant the rest of the world is watching us. Hmm. They're looking to see whether we can make this experiment in ordered liberty work here, right? Um, and so we, we need to always be mindful of the fact that the world's eyes are on us, and and we have. Uh, an example to set in terms of um, uh, living up to the values that we profess. Again, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, limited government, a separation between uh, the state and, and the realm of the, of the personal and the individual. Um, so it, it, why does it matter in our foreign policy? It matters because it matters to Americans. Hmm. Americans care about human rights. Americans care about democracy. Um, and it is impossible to conceive of an American foreign policy that is not attuned to the wishes of the American people. Um, so we promote human rights around the world because it's the right thing to do, right? And it's this is not just Ambassador Sales saying this. You know, this is Ronald Reagan saying right. this, right? Uh, this is um, I'm not going to invoke that other uh, Princetonian uh, Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> uh, he and I may see may not see eye to eye on foreign policy questions, um, but but this is a, a long running. Uh, strain of American thinking about how to engage with the world. Um, the other thing I would say is, even if you reject the sort of idealistic accounts uh, or principled accounts of uh, American promotion of human rights and liberty around the world, consider just the basic realpolitik reasons for doing so. Human rights and the rule of law are our comparative advantage. This is how we compete with autocracies like China. This is how we compete with dictatorships like Iran. Yeah. We set forth a series of principles that are attractive to other countries around the world. And we use those principles to draw them into our orbit. We are much better off if a country like Taiwan um, is adhering to principles of liberal democracy and part of the American-led order rather than in China's orbit. And you can say the same thing about Japan or South Korea or the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, by standing up for Western liberal values, um, we create opportunities for new alliances um, that, that draw friends into our orbit and prevent them from falling into the orbit of uh, our adversaries and, and uh, autocratic governments around the world. And another realpolitik reason for promoting human rights and democracy around the world is because you can use it to impose costs on your adversaries. Hmm. Uh, when, when Russia uses banned chemical weapons to kill dissidents, that is an opportunity for us to stand up for human rights because they matter in their own right. But it's also an opportunity for the United States and our Western partners to impose costs on Putin's dictatorship. And when China rounds up a million Muslim Uyghurs and puts them in concentration camps in the course of committing genocide against them, uh, it is important for the United States to speak up for the values of pluralism and tolerance and religious freedom because those values are important in their own right. But it is also an occasion for us to impose significant costs on Xi Jinping's dictatorship. So human rights matter for principled reasons, but they also matter for reasons of realpolitik in terms of creating alliances and in terms of imposing costs on our adversaries. All right. We have time for one last question, and that's this, the big takeaways. What lessons should leaders of American foreign policy, either current leaders of American foreign policy or future leaders, take away from these past 20 years in Afghanistan? Um, I think modesty 
is mm. the most important lesson we can learn from Afghanistan. Um, there are some problems that we do not have tools to fix, or if we have the tools, uh, the American people will not sustain the use of them for decade-long commitments. Um, you know, if we could rewind the clock back to 2001, uh, the immediate aftermath of 9-11, what, what, what choices should policymakers have made then that are different from the ones they made? I think uh, in any realistic scenario, after the, the deadliest attack on our homeland, you are going to see an American military response in Afghanistan. Um, whether it's George W. Bush who's president or Al Gore or somebody else, um, you're, you're going to see an American military uh, intervention in Afghanistan. Um, and, but, but once the initial uh, campaign was over and ended in victory, you know, I, I think at, at that moment, policymakers should have hesitated before investing enormous amounts of time and treasure and national prestige yeah. in trying to build a liberal democracy in Afghanistan centered around a centralized Afghan government. Uh, I, I think modesty uh, would have counseled for less ambitious goals that were focused specifically on counterterrorism, having destroyed ta the Taliban, having degraded Al Qaeda, continue to engage in Afghanistan in order to prevent those threats from reconstituting themselves. And in the course of doing so, expect that there will be certain beneficial outcomes for human rights and the rule of law, but those can't be the focus, yeah. right? We're, our military is really good at counterterrorism when given the opportunity. Our military is really good at applying overwhelming firepower uh, on adversaries. What they're not good at and what we don't want them to be good at um, is creating liberal democracies. Um, so uh, what, what, what's the main takeaway from Afghanistan? Um, use overwhelming force against our terrorist enemies um, and, and then back off um, and leave in place the mechanisms you need to continue to apply pressure. Uh, but, but don't try to create a 21st century Marshall Plan uh, in places where that may not be applicable. Yeah. Well, I think it must have been two years ago, we had a fantastic conversation over coffee in the basement of the State Department. And it went on so long that one of us almost missed the meeting. So we're going to prevent that from happening this time. Uh, Ambassador Sells, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thanks, you know, great to be here. And I appreciate your time. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Ambassador Nathan Sales on America's involvement in Afghanistan, the disastrous withdrawal, and important takeaways from the 20-year-long engagement. If you'd like to hear more on Afghanistan and what comes next, be sure to visit jmp.princeton.edu and register for the James Madison Program's September 15th webinar, Afghanistan, What Happened and What Can Be Done, featuring professors Bernard Heichel, Melissa Lee, Michael Reynolds, and Robert P. George. You can find a link to register for that event in the show notes. That's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.